Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. I'm your co-host, Asiya. And my name is Umer. And today we'll be talking about the immigrant vote for Doug Ford. Yeah, we'll be talking with Sadia Khan about this. Sadia is a Toronto-based community activist. Who's worked extensively with immigrant communities. She's an immigrant herself, so that also helps. So yeah, FYI, everyone in this podcast are people of color. And we all voted for Doug Ford. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, but... You didn't? No. I thought we all did. So, Mary, you're an immigrant as well, though. I have been known yep. to immigrate. Yeah. I, I actually was born in Ontario, so I'm, on, I'm the only true Canadian. Yeah. Oh, that's why you didn't vote for Ford. Yeah. Because I'm a progressive urban... What is it? Progressive urban elite. Progressive urban elite? Yes. Why? What is it? Yeah, what is that? The urban elite. I'm the urban elite that votes progressively. You know those guys. Yeah, you know. yeah, like uh, downtown. Downtown, exactly. Yeah, downtown. I live downtown too now, so. You do live downtown. Yeah, I moved there after the elections. So I was sick and tired of being around those conservative immigrants in the suburbs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so at this point in time uh, in Ontario, about thirty percent of the population is uh, made up of visible minorities. Mm -hmm. And one of the features of this recent election was that a lot of non-white people uh, supported Doug Ford's Progressive Conservative Party. And and so, you know, we've done an episode on Doug Ford with Sam Gindin, but we wanted to look at this issue in a little bit more detail. So that's why we brought in an, an immigrant, an expert on the topic. So we thought we would we would spend a little bit more time. So that's why we're making this episode as well. We can't know exactly the percentage of different ethnic groups that voted for Ford. Mm-hmm. Or can you? No, can. no, you can't. But we kind of get a sense of that because of the way that the suburbs voted for Ford and the way that the suburbs are composed. Some of them have a majority of immigrants in them. Yeah, so that would be in places like Markham, in places like Mississauga, yeah, uh, or even the inner suburbs of Toronto, like Scarborough or Etobicoke, mm-hmm. where you find the population is a majority non-white. And so Markham, for instance, is 55% Chinese. Mm-hmm. In Mississauga, you know, lots of South Asian immigrants and other kinds of immigrants. The, the PCs, they, they got 26 seats in the outer suburbs. And the NDP ended up picking up just four, and the Liberals picked up zero. So I guess this was like surprising to a lot of people, because we just assumed that immigrants and people of color are going to be progressive, because they tend to face oppression and racism that perhaps white people don't face. Is that the reason? Is that the reason people are surprised? The issue of race, that comes up because the Ford brothers, they are right-wing populists. And if they were in the U.S., they would be sort of placating, you know, a certain nativist base. But they aren't necessarily doing that. I mean, in some senses they are, but not not completely. They're actually attracting visible minorities. 
So this is one of the ways in which the, you know, saying that Doug Ford is just like Trump or something doesn't work because Trump doesn't get the majority of the the non-white vote, whereas Doug Ford does. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And I think Sadia has, as an organizer, as as an activist, she's interested in, in talking about how the left should engage with immigrant communities, how we should understand what their grievances are. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, how we can make ourselves relevant right. to uh, racialized people and to marginalized people more generally so that right-wing populism isn't what ends up being appealing to them. But, uh, but that, you know, a progressive project and hopefully a, a socialist project is what ends up getting their attention. So should we roll the interview? Yeah. See you on the other side. Today we're speaking with Sadia Khan, who is a Toronto-based community activist. She has especially been active in the Toronto community of Thorncliffe Park. And Sadia, for about six years, co-ran a a tutoring program for children in the community. Thank you for being on the show, Sadia. Thank you for having me. During the Ford election, several racially diverse writings voted for Ford's conservative government. It seems like a bit of a contradiction since many have accused Ford of racism and xenophobia. So what are your thoughts on the fact that people of color did vote for Ford? I think the first thing for progressives to note is that we have tended to assume that racialized communities, from the fact of them being racialized and fact of being immigrant, somehow inherently will tend towards more progressive values. And I think that is an essentialist view that needs to be challenged. And it is being challenged through this election. So I think with racialized communities, immigrant communities being drawn to conservative politicians and being drawn to conservative policies, I think there are a number of uh, reasons for that. I don't think there it is something inherent to immigrants, but I think the appeal is partially in um, some social conservative policies such as the sex ed curriculum. I think the the conservatives really did mobilize on and tap into the grievances that a lot of immigrant communities were feeling against the liberal government and primarily targeted at the revised sex ed curriculum that was introduced in 2015. Okay, so what you're saying is that we, we can't essentialize immigrants. They aren't necessarily going to be progressive in their outlook. So how do we understand them? I think we can only really understand them by talking to them and uh, and organizing among them. Too often, I think we speak about racialized working class communities in the context of uh, very small groups of activists and very um, limited spaces in academia. And very few of us actually are out there talking to immigrant communities. And I think we would find that immigrants are just as likely to be all along the political spectrum as anyone else is. And I think similar to other constituencies, other working class constituencies, they are amenable to political organizing and to efforts that challenge dominant political consciousness. A lot of people when Ford came into power were really worried that this represented 
a xenophobic and racist government. Do you, how do you feel, you know, racialized communities or people of color, do you feel like they feel threatened by this racism or how do they react to some xenophobic or racist commentary that Ford has made in the past? I think the consciousness around uh, racism from politicians among racialized communities that I've had interactions with, that consciousness is uh, very uneven. So if we go back to, for example, uh, Rob Ford in the city and his election, it was well known that he had made several derogatory remarks about uh, racialized communities, immigrant communities in particular. And yet he enjoyed widespread appeal among racialized communities. And so I think among a lot of working class communities which don't necessarily have a principled and and grounded anti-racist politics and which is which is mostly a product of organizing as well and and to try and pull together that as a strong enough critique to delegitimize a politician. In the absence of that I think a lot of uh, racialized communities were willing to overlook and forgive Rob Ford's racism, as I think many of them are overlooking and forgiving, if they at all acknowledge even Doug Ford's racism. Mm -hmm. So it it seems that they have other concerns that go beyond someone's ostensible racism or xenophobia. Or just because one is an immigrant doesn't mean that one is not oneself. Uh, Hold on to to xenophobic or racist views. I would agree. I think uh, a case in point, I think, is that a lot of racialized communities, visible minorities, were actually mobilized by the right wing towards Islamophobic sentiments and Islamophobic attacks on something like the allowance of Friday prayers in schools. And a lot of the protests that responded to that were by other racialized communities. Just to clarify, uh, that situation was where some Muslim community members wanted to have prayers on Fridays in the school, and there was protest against this. I think it's just to say that uh, that your point earlier about the about the diversity within racialized communities is that there isn't that to to think and to ascribe a a, um, a unity among racialized communities, a, un- a solidarity among racialized communities. Uh, a progressive reflex among them of anti-racism, I think that is being very presumptuous and actually somewhat essentialist about what they, how they perceive their own interests in the absence of left organizing. Okay, so to follow up on that, how then can we, in the context of a you know urban Canada with the kind of diversity that it has, how do we talk about racism without, without sort of making it just the white thing? The expression of racism or the the holding on to xenophobic ideas, it should not simply be taken on, uh, taken as white supremacy or whatever term you want to apply to it. That it is a much more nuanced thing. I think it, if one were to be more oriented to towards the international realm, I think it that seems like a very straightforward observation that the majority of the world is racialized. And in a majority of the world, racialized world, there are a lot of inter-ethnic and minority conflicts and racist violence. And given that that's the case, why would we assume 
that when people are people from all over the world are coming here that they somehow have been washed clean from the the social context and political context of where they're coming from for leftists i think this means that we cannot just have a simplistic view of who who's exclusively likely to practice racism versus who is exclusively likely to be the victim of racism and so if we appreciate racial politics as developing in a broader context rather than being uh, rather than operating in a vacuum of white supremacy then i think we can orient ourselves in a way to build anti-racist politics along with the broader progressive politics regardless of the community that we are organizing in and orienting ourselves towards i also want to ask about the class dimensions because when we talk about immigrant communities about racialized communities we we talk about them as as if they form uh, a block we we don't look at the the various kinds of racialized people various kinds of immigrants that are here in canada not only from that standpoint but we also don't we often don't talk about uh, the class divisions within each community so you know let's let's say for instance that the south asian community with all its divisions of uh, ethnicity and uh, religion and whatnot um there's also a class dimension that's there and you know there's plenty of south asians in ontario who are doing really well a lot of them are doctors engineers uh, other sorts of professionals and some of them of course are in the upper echelons of bay street many of them are now increasingly represented in city council in parliament so those people exist and then of course there's the other side where there's plenty of south asians certainly the people in thorncliff park for instance who are at the bottom and how do we actually talk about immigrant communities while keeping in mind the class dimensions i think the class differences among racialized communities really need a lot more attention than we tend to pay them as as activists when we speak about anti-racism in the absence of and to the exclusion of class politics we tend to collapse those differences that operate in very real ways within racialized communities so for example in uh, in the south asian community and in the chinese community a lot of um small businesses and some larger businesses will be owned by chinese or south asian immigrants and their workers will also be chinese or south asian and therefore there is very clearly a class conflict there and there is very clearly exploitation and in in many cases there is hyper exploitation because of you know lack of language um lack of uh, citizenship status that might be stable and so i think in order to do anti-racism properly and with a view to substantive emancipation of racialized communities that has to be done within a context of appreciating class differences so sex ed curriculum has been a huge flashpoint it was introduced by the liberal government um and it was an updated sex ed curriculum from the 1980 1998 one it included uh educational pieces for children such as information on consent information on gender identities information on same sex relationships and this caused a lot of protests and a lot of controversy within a bunch of different communities including immigrant and racialized communities recently Doug Ford rolled it back so it's been squashed so you were organizing when the sex ed the new sex ed curriculum was introduced and so maybe you could explain to us you know what's so crazy about this 
uh, sex ed curriculum and you know why has it been so controversial amongst these various these various communities my sense of the of the curriculum is that there was a lot of there were a lot of uh, important uh, aspects of it that i think are necessary for children to know i do think its implementation was done very shoddily and it almost guaranteed a certain backlash there's certainly a role of the state in implementing a curriculum and trying to use the public education system to reproduce certain more progressive or more liberal norms but i think a primarily top down mechanism of introducing a curriculum with very little consultation is not handling it well i think if if the aim of a policy such as this is to create a society that is much more liberal and to do it substantively and to do it in a way that builds a hegemonic position for these um for these orientations i think that has to be done in a way that is more gentle and allows for the communities to have a chance alongside educators to buy into it and to see that it is for the benefit of their children and for the benefit of their communities to have a much more open conversation about gender about sex about consent and unless that is done i think it is very difficult for the communities to not feel attacked by it and especially in the context of islamophobia i think a lot of muslim communities feel like they they are under attack and with the with the curriculum like this it was hard to ignore compared to a lot of other policies i would imagine because their children are being affected in a very concrete way in the schools that they send them to on a daily basis and so i think with with that mix and with something as sensitive as uh, as sex it was a really bad combination i don't think it's it's inevitable that it, and i don't think it means that we just avoid talking about homophobia and sexism in immigrant communities or even in muslim communities i think it goes without saying that certainly there's lots of problems but in order to do that i think there has to be a political program that there it cannot just be a, a top down approach i think activists and public educators do have to come together to um to take that on so much of the uh liberal press uh, of course has been up in arms since Doug Ford was elected the leader of the party and then eventually went on to win the global mail for instance carried an op-ed in the run up to the election which lamented the fact that uh, large numbers of immigrants in ontario are pushing the province in a rightward direction and the toronto star and other papers have uh, published similar opinions that ontario is a centrist place but thanks to the influx of immigrants in recent years it's becoming increasingly conservative is this true well largely ontario has not been a centrist place over um decades and decades it's much more common for ontario to elect conservative governments than um than either liberal or ndp governments and when it comes to immigrants actually um a 2013 broadband institute study had concluded that immigrants largely are very similar have hold very similar views to the canadian born population and in some cases have more progressive views than canadian born population so for example on um on their support for unions and on their support for government intervention there is um there is sometimes higher support 
among immigrants than there is uh, for Canadian-born people towards that. Mm. Largely, immigrants are... There is a strong, um, you know, push towards assimilation for immigrant political views. And those who are in Canada most recently tend to be socially conservative, yes, in on certain questions of um, abortion rights and same-sex marriage um, and, um, you know, marijuana use. And, but largely, th- even those views within a decade of immigrants being here tend to become much more similar to the Canadian population. This is actually quite interesting that on economic issues, immigrants tend to be more progressive than the white Canadian population. So then how do progressives and socialists use that to our benefit? Or, or I don't know if that's too much of an instrumentalist approach, but let me, let me ask this question a bit more broadly. I mean, you've spoken about engaging with immigrant communities and actually organizing among them. What does that mean? What does that look like? I think it is helpful to start with the premise that immigrant communities are just as open to progressive politics and that there are differential political views and that the political views are as much a product of their own particular social circumstances as much as what the political landscape in a given context offers. So I think we need to be able to appreciate that in order to build a broad-based socialist project in, in Ontario, that we will have to talk to people who are ordinary. And as ordinary people, they will have a mix of political views, many of which they will not have necessarily thought about that intently, and therefore will be open to thinking about in a different sort of way. And when we talk about organizing, I think there would be no point in organizing. It it wouldn't be a necessity if everyone agreed with us already. And I think for working class communities, we have to come to terms with them having a variety of sometimes really difficult views for us to for us as progressives to to address and that should be taken as uh, as a challenge and we should be able to build our capacities to to work through those views and how do we do it do we talk down to them because that's usually that's the way i've learned how to do it or we can yell at them as well yes yelling would be we can just express our shock that they just don't share our progressive ideals yeah how can you not agree it's unbelievable. <laughs> you, you say that as a joke, but that is the, the sentiment that's in the media now, in much of the liberal press, is this is the retort. We just don't understand how people could disagree with this sex ed curriculum. And well, you know, like not to just dump on liberal media, I think a lot of the left right now is very much like that as well. You know, things like gender identity is very confusing for a lot of people, but it's, it's just not okay to even ask questions. And the only people who are willing to question are these right wing People like Jordan Peterson, for example, and that's where people kind of uh, gravitate towards because this man is asking questions, whereas much of the left and the liberal media, its only tactics is shut people down and shut discussion down. So, you know, one of the primary, I think, guiding principles that I would like to hold is, you know, something that Marx has said, that nothing that is human is alien to me. And I think when it comes to really problematic political views, that is the least we can do to be able to have a conversation. Like, that's not asking for very much. What it is asking for, of course, is is can we understand? Can we put ourselves in the shoes of someone who has 
sometimes very reactionary political views, and yet be able to understand where they're coming from and be able to understand the, the logic of their position. And it's only once we understand the logic of their position and can work through without being condescending to a position of what are the social implications of what they're saying? What are you know, the implications for harm uh, to other human beings? And what are the implications for what kind of society we want to live in? And I think by and large, like, people aren't, even people who hold racist views and who hold homophobic views cannot necessarily be written off as evil or as incorrigibly reactionary. Political sentiment is a work in progress. Many of us were not, you know, in you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, weren't necessarily progressive in all ways. It was because we had the privilege to encounter other activists. We had the privilege of uh, um, you know, liberal arts education. We had the privilege of some, um, some great progressive teachers. We had sometimes had the privilege of just being born into a family that was more liberal than the average family. None of these things are true for me. That's why I'm still working on getting there. <laughs> That's why we have to keep working on it there. <laughs> Less of a bigot day by day. <laughs> One hopes. Yeah, so I think that was really great. Yeah, this has been a really enlightening discussion. Thanks so much again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Sadia. Hope you'll join us again in the future. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. What's been interesting to see is the left being unable, I think, to really come to terms with the support that Ford gets from, you know, working class constituencies of all kinds, including, you know, racialized people. And in Sadia's take, she demands that we em we be empathetic. In You know, instead of being sort of a moral police where we say, well, people who have ideas or positions that are different from our own, we shout at them or, you know, we put them down. And I think the left has gotten really good at this. And so what it, it, it or certain sections of the left. And so it's isolated itself from the way that, that regular people actually are. And we, you know, we live in a, a society that's racist and, and sexist and homophobic and it, you know, it creates individuals that are mm -hmm. this way. And so if we as leftists, uh, hope to create a different kind of society. We can't just say, "Well, oh, these people are uh, racists and and sexists and homophobic." We can't talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, if there's anyone hesitating around pursuing such a project, like if they feel like people who are racist should not be spoken to or whatever, the truth of the matter is that if we are not speaking to people, the right will. So. Mm -hmm. I think we need to learn how to work with and speak to and convince people who do hold objectionable, objectionable views and learn how to navigate through this reality and, and how, to, how to move people towards a more progressive direction. Mm -hmm. And of course, the right has done a, a great job of... Yeah, but they do it in a cheap way by just validating what they believe. We, we have a hard task. Well, I mean, but there are, there are many things that people believe there they're contradictory, right? They're not. Right. They don't just. They're not just racist. They're all. They also have tendencies that are progressive and universalist. We weren't able to broadcast as part of this episode the entirety of our interview with Sadia. That's right. We have a whole other part 
uh, where Sadie discusses the sex ed curriculum. If you'd like to hear that, you need to subscribe and become a patron. Yeah, so if you if you become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast, you'll be able to get access to our extended interview with Sadia. The extended cut of Sadia's interview will go online next Monday, so that'll be August 20th. You can email us at podcast at socialistproject.ca. And if you'd like to learn more about the Socialist Project, you can go to socialistproject.ca. See you next time. Thanks for listening in. 